The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, That one should be relatively easy to find. It's right at the beginning of the book, and uh, we're going to get going here right in the very first verse. This week, we are starting a brand new series. It's called Our Story Begins, and for the next uh, 22 weeks, we will be going verse by verse through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, Just to kind of let you in a little bit uh, behind the curtain, we, we prayed and thought a lot about this title. Because, uh, as you will see very prominently in these 19 verses we're going to look at today, the Bible is a story about God. God is the divine author and the main character in all of the scriptures. And uh, it's unfortunately common for people to believe the Bible is mainly about us or even what God can do for us. Uh, All of history belongs to God because he is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. Amen. Uh, And we must remember this truth when we study the Bible and as we seek to live in obedience to what it teaches. Uh, However, God has graciously allowed us to be a part of his story. Uh, We will see as we go through Genesis that humanity was not a divine afterthought, but that we were a part of God's plan before time began. Uh, To say that humanity plays an important role in all God has done and is doing does not diminish his role as the supreme and most important character in the story. Now, when we say our story, we mean God and us. And it is truly amazing to think about the fact that God did not make us and then go off onto some other cosmic endeavor, but he has stayed intimately involved and is overseeing a plan which culminates in a beautiful crescendo of us and him being together forever. We also believe it's very important in our current cultural moment to acknowledge that the Bible is our story, as in the shared history of all humanity. Uh, when someone asks you, hey, what's, what's your story? We tend to think in terms of uh, the life we have lived, or maybe uh, we even go back a couple generations thinking about what has influenced you know, where and how we live The truth is, we could see the foolishness of the tension and division that exists between people today if we had a wider lens and we were able to think farther back, like back to the beginning. Uh, We would would see things differently than we do. We would understand that oftentimes we're being duped and pitted against each other uh, when the Bible says we have a common enemy and it's not one another. Uh, His name is Satan, and he was causing trouble from the beginning. So uh, if we thought of one another as, as... Uh, having common ancestors, regardless of race or country of origin, created for the glory of God and for fellowship with him. If we really saw Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as our forefathers in the faith, we could see the beauty of what happens when superficial divisions are removed. And we know that this is the will of God. Revelation tells us that one day people of every tribe, nation, and language will be gathered in the presence of King Jesus, and we will raise our voices together in a glorious chorus, declaring his holiness and power and majesty. People who were poor in this life, people who were rich in this life, people who lived in cities and people who lived in jungles will all bask together in the unfiltered light and radiance of God's perfect glory. Amen. Looking forward to that day. Uh, When we see ourselves first as children of God, we can walk together in the love and unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17. As we study Genesis together, our hope is that uh, it is not going to be a disconnected tale of people that lived and things that happened a long time ago and far, far away. Our hope is that you will see this book of beginnings as the record of your story. And you will see it as our story. And rejoice that we've been allowed by grace alone through faith alone to participate in God's story. 
Please join us in prayer and hope that our shared past will bind us together in preparation for our shared future. Amen. We're going to read now Genesis uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 19. It's roughly half of the first chapter. And uh, that's about the pace we're going to go as we work through this book together. I'm excited to do this with you. I hope you are too. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 1. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs, for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light on earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Praise God for his word. Uh, So first, let's familiarize ourselves with the basics about this book, and then we're going to look at what the Lord has for us in these particular verses that we just read. So the author of Genesis is not named in the book, but tradition holds that Moses wrote it, along with the rest of the first five books of the Bible. Those are known commonly as the Pentateuch. Uh, It's really one work broken up into five different parts. Uh, These books are known um, to the Hebrews as the Torah, And uh, it's called the Book of the Law throughout the Old Testament. So you might see that language as you're reading through your Bible. I know you're doing that all the time. The Book of the Law is the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Uh, Luke 2.22 and other places refer to these writings, these five books, as the Law of Moses. So you'll see them with uh, some different uh, words to describe them. uh, But basically, it's all talking about the same thing. Uh, Some textual critics have claimed there is evidence that Moses did not uh, write these books. However... Uh, Many of those critiques don't hold up. Um, I debated and decided that taking you through a bunch of those uh, might be really fun and exciting for me, but maybe not so much for you. So I'm just going to say there are some folks that don't think Moses wrote Genesis. They've got some reasons. Uh, But most of those critiques, uh, when some critical thinking is applied to them, uh, don't, don't hold up very well. We do know that Moses was trained in the palace of the Egyptians. Uh, one, one thing people say is, you know, people couldn't even write. Moses was probably illiterate. Moses was trained um, by, you know, the wisest men of the time, and so it's highly likely he was literate and able to write. That, that one doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, Deuteronomy says this, so there's some internal, the, the scriptures, uh, and we believe that the, the Bible is a self-authenticating book, um, and it is on what it speaks, it is the highest authority. And so we can look for external evidence to either verify things or uh, you know, have discussions. But ultimately, if the Bible says something about something, that's, that's kind of what it is. So, uh, so Deuteronomy 31, uh, 24 through 26 says this. So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. Uh, John, the apostle, who was trained by Jesus himself, said this, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, so that, and, and this, the simple fact that um, Jesus doesn't say specifically that Moses wrote Genesis, but if you look at roughly half of the times Jesus quoted the Old Testament, he was quoting Genesis. Jesus treated Genesis as if it was a historical uh, accurate document and something to be taken 
uh, as truth and not just just poetry, though parts of it are poetic, uh, as some people would uh, claim. So Jesus quoted from it a lot when he was building cases for doctrine. So that, that tells me that the master, the king, the lamb uh, that was slain before the foundations of the earth, that he thought Genesis was something that could be pulled from and, and be confident about it. So uh, I know for folks that have not uh, put trust in Christ and have not experienced the, the fullness of the beauty of the gospel uh, opening their eyes to see the truth, I realize for them that may be insufficient, but for those of us who are within the household of faith, uh, Jesus' opinion on it is pretty good for me. So that's kind of a, kind of a, a, a settler there, subject settled. So uh, Genesis ha- definitely has two parts. Some would classify three distinct parts to it. Uh, you get the first 11 chapters, which is what we're going to focus on in this series. Uh, then you have the accounts of God's dealing with Abraham, uh, which takes the, the next largest portion. And some would also then say Joseph's story could be thought of and, and dealt with as a third section. I, I, don't, I, I don't have a strong opinion about that. I think it's fine to see that either way. Uh, we know Moses was there for the history recorded from Exodus through Deuteronomy, right? So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses was a part of the story from Exodus to Deuteronomy, so... Um, that kind of makes sense that he wrote about those things and that part of the book of the law. We don't know how he got the information for what is in Genesis. Uh, few options of how that could have happened. Either it was passed to him by oral tradition, uh, which people were much better at then, right? Um, they didn't have TV, and so their memory banks hadn't been melted quite like ours. And, and just as a part of their culture, remembering things very specifically, oral tradition could be counted on. A lot of people say, oh, any part of the... The Bible that or is dependent upon oral tradition, you can't count on that because watch. And then they show you the telephone game thing, and it's like, see see what happens? But you're, you're doing that with us in this time and place, and we don't hold uh, as high of a value on memorizing things, stories, because we have other mediums to, and, and ways to tell our stories. So we don't have to remember them and pass them to our children exactly as people did in this time. So that's not really a fair assessment. Uh, when people do that. Uh, So either it was passed to him by oral tradition or he came into possession of some written accounts somehow that he then compiled into the book of Genesis uh, or he received it as divine revelation from God. Okay, so it's it's one of those three options. Either way, we believe the God who created the cosmos has the power to preserve and make sure what he wanted his people to know was passed on to us. And so uh, if what we just read, if God can do that, if you're willing to buy that, then uh, it follows pretty easily that God could preserve and pass on uh, what he needed us to know about this uh, and get it to us so that we could know about him and know about us and worship him properly. So praise God for that. Uh, now, as we look at these verses today, there is a prominent feature that we're going to focus on. Uh, if you notice, in these first uh, 19 verses, we see the word God uh, some 17 times. Uh, This bolsters what we said earlier, which is uh, that this story is about God first and foremost. You get the first 19 verses, uh, God is mentioned 17 times. I mean, it's very repetitive. It's very uh, normative in ancient literature, especially Hebrew. So uh, I, I am not a Hebrew scholar. I know some, but I'm not one, so I don't go real deep into Hebrew with you guys a whole lot, but it's important for us to pay attention here for the Hebrew word for God uh, this 17 times, and in particular in Genesis 1, is Elohim. And it is the only word used for God until Genesis chapter 2. Every reference to God you see in chapter 1 is Elohim. Uh, In chapter 2, the personal name of God, which there's debate about this, but uh, Yahweh is how it's commonly known and kind of heard in the English tongue. Uh, That's added in chapter 2. Okay, so it's Elohim alone, chapter 1. Now, Elohim basically describes God's power and supremacy and sovereignty. Uh, it is also a plural word, which is really interesting, which, and, and mostly what that's meant to do is emphasize the attributes I just said about God, that he's powerful and supreme and sovereign. Um, that, that's, that's an ancient way of saying, you know, basically it's like saying he's holy, holy, holy or mighty, mighty, mighty. The plurality of the word is to say, we're not sure we have one word to tell you just how holy or powerful or mighty or sovereign this God is. So when we say it in the plural, we want you to understand he's really powerful and he's really totally supreme. Uh, That's that's the point of that, that that Elohim. Um, It also begins to at least hint, 
and there's debate on this, but it at least hints at God's Trinitarian nature, that he is one God uh, with three co-equal, co-eternal, and co-powerful persons within himself, uh, which is the harmony of what the Bible teaches about God's character and nature. had a Trinity conversation with somebody this week and found myself again saying, brother, I know this sounds crazy. <laughs> I get it. I can't totally explain it to you, but we're looking at the totality of what the Bible says about God's character and nature. And I said to my friend that I was talking to, I said, uh, I, I just fully anticipate if I'm talking about the God who did everything we just read in the first 19 verses of Genesis, that I'm going to encounter some things about him that uh, I'm going to be tempted to try to make it fit within my logic box, but it just might not. And uh, thankfully, uh, he agreed that that was true. So praise the Lord. Um, the, the, the supremacy of God is on display in him being described here as Elohim, but it's also in the act of creation we see in the first 19 verses of Genesis. It's not just the fact that God is called Elohim, but if you just look at what we read, <laughs> you see the power, the supremacy, the sovereignty of God. This, this God who simply spoke when there was nothing and created everything. That, that is one place I will let you know right off the bat uh, creates a separation between, between the way Christians believe the world came to be and, and other cults and religions. Uh, it it this, the, the theological term is ex nihilo, right? Out of something, out of nothing, and that's that's a very prominent feature of what the Bible says happened. That is not true in other ancient myths and legends. Most of the time, there was because it's kind of crazy, right? It's a philosophical mind bender when you think, okay, you had nothing, and then there was something, right? Experience doesn't allow for that computation to go through your mind cleanly, because most of the time we have. If there's going to be something, it was formed out of something else, or we added the parts of many things to make the one thing. It's something from nothing is pretty hard to, to grasp. So, again, we encounter a place where God uh, is, is probably far beyond what we can even stretch to imagine. Uh, from, from these verses, we're going to look at three very important things about who God is that we can see from these verses tonight. Before I uh, walk with you through those three things, uh, one thing I do want to say that we're not going to be able to learn from this in any kind of conclusive way is uh, how old the earth is. And so depending on how much of a Bible nerd and or how uh, deeply you are steeped into Christian subculture will determine whether or not you understand uh, what I'm about to talk about, the, the reality of it. But I'm just telling, I'll just tell you that there, there are among Christians a lot of debate surrounding uh, the age of the earth. So there, there are some people that think we can look at what the Bible says, uh, the fact that this seems to be describing days um, as in the way we understand it, 24-hour time periods. Uh, they'll take that and then go also look at the genealogies and, and they add some numbers and do some math, come up with an idea that the earth is somewhere between six to 10,000 years old. There are other groups who think that uh, maybe there was a gap right at the beginning uh, where it says, you know, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the uh, surface of the deep. Maybe there's a gap of time there. Or maybe these days is another example of God uh, trying to help us understand what he's doing, but kind of reducing it down into a way that we can get it. But there's maybe large expanses of time in between these uh, creative acts. Maybe see these days instead of as like geological ages is one way some people put it. So the whole point there is there are people that are very sure and very entrenched on their position on what they think Genesis reveals about how old the earth is. And, and, and where that becomes problematic is... And I want you guys to be sharp and, and look for this stuff and listen for it because people do this all the time. Unfortunately, very often within the household of faith, we will get into little neat-nick hobby horse conversations and, and we will turn these things into salvation issues. We will make it seem as if if you don't believe this thing about this thing, then, well, you don't believe the whole Bible and then you, and, and then you can't be saved. And so there, there are folks that say, you know, since this appears at, at, at face value to be talking about you know, six literal days of creation and a seventh day of rest, that if you don't take that as it is, you're undermining the authority of the scriptures. And uh, thus, you know, that just begins the corruption that then uh, undermines the entirety of the faith. And so if you're, if you don't go with their young earth interpretation, uh, you're apostate, right? And then you've got people on the other side saying, well, what you're doing by doing that, by trying to force the scriptures to do something that maybe they weren't meant to do. What you're doing is creating unneeded 
divisions between what the Bible reveals and what we can see empirically through science. You're, you're creating issues for people by telling them, if you don't believe the earth is six to 10,000 years old, well, you can't be a Christian. Okay, and so you, you got people on either side of that. Here's what I just want to say to you, friends. We got to get better at seeing the point. And, and recently we were in Revelation. I, I tried to teach you the same thing. That most of the time when people pop up in Revelation, what are they talking about? They're arguing about their specific flavor and personal preference on timelines and charts and whatever else. Listen, you may have very strong opinions about what you think Genesis does or doesn't say about the age of the earth. I have strong opinions about it, but I'm trying real hard not to let you know that because that's not the point. That's, that's the main thing I want you to understand. That's not the point. Jesus didn't give us, and I meant to say Jesus. He was the word that was with God, right, at the very beginning. Jesus didn't make sure we have Genesis 1 so that we could bicker and argue about uh, things that we can't really conclusively nail down. And I know, you can, I know you'll get on the internet and you'll get on YouTube and you'll find some guy that sounds very smart that'll tell you, if you don't think the way I think about this, then you don't love God and you're a heathen and you should you know, tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown in the sea or some crazy stuff like that. That's not the point, okay? And I'm not advocating for a liberal theological approach here where we just, everything's up for interpretation, we just do whatever we want with and it doesn't really matter and God didn't mean something here. I know I know something's true. These are either 24-hour literal days or they're not. I, but from the, God, if, God, if that was the point of this thing, I think God would have been more severely clear about it. Okay? And, and so please don't get into arguments with people, especially if you're trying to, evang- if you're trying to talk to somebody about Jesus. Please don't, don't start with, so do you, can you believe the earth is 6,000 years old? Because if not, I can't talk to you about Jesus. Like, don't do that, man. Start with Jesus. Start with what are you going to do with him? The fact that clearly Jesus lived. We've got more evidence for that than we do anything in antiquity. Jesus lived. At, at minimum, he caused a big ruckus. He died. <laughs> and, and something happened in the world, and, and there's been shockwaves ever since. Like, So what are you going to do with that? Right. That's, that's where we want to start. We don't want to start with um, thinking that if we can convince somebody that, you know, the earth is a certain age, and, and, and it's just, it's not, it's not the point. And, and when I say I don't think it's, you might not like this, and that's okay. I don't think it's clear enough. You might say to me, well, it says day. How more, how more clear do you have to be? Yeah, well, if you go take the word yom and you go look at other places, that's the Hebrew word for day, and you go look at other places, it's used sometimes to describe something other than 24-hour day, okay? So, nana nana boo boo, right? Like, I'm just saying to you, like, like, Let's find the point. Let's find the point. What is the point of this? The point is that Elohim, before there was anything, spoke everything into existence. Is that Elohim said, let there be light, and there was light. That's the point of at least the first 19 verses of Genesis. That there was nothing, and this God is so powerful and so sovereign and so good and so mighty. He spoke everything into existence when there was nothing. That, as Christians, is what we need to agree on. Because don't you understand, there's, there's a devil in hell that wants people to not to, to fight against that premise, right? That's really, if I've, got a, if I've got a Christian friend that thinks, well, maybe age was built into the earth the, the way that, you know, Adam wasn't a baby when he was born. Or if I've got a Christian friend that says, you know, I'm, I'm a lifetime member of the Creation Museum and that's, you know, hallelujah, I'm, I'm a young earth guy, let's do this. I, I'll, if both of those guys are saying, All that we see in creation, including biological life, is not the result of some random chaotic event, but that God himself spoke all things into existence. Even if those two guys agree on when he did, disagree on when he did that, I want to grab both of their hands and say, okay, let's go talk to some people that believe it happened out of random chaos, because that's really what we're, we need to come up against here. And that's really, that's really the, the thing that matters when it comes to whether or not people are going to come and know this Jesus who we love uh, when they see people saying, you have to be a fool to believe that God created everything that uh, exists. That's, that's really where the front line is. So we're not going to get in a big debate here, uh, and I'm not going to air my personal opinions about the age of the earth. You may be glad about that. You might be mad about it. You might be somewhere in the middle. I don't know. Um, but that's what we're going to do, because we're going to try to be faithful to the point. Um, we're going to try to look at, at what it is that God wants us to know about him through this. And it doesn't seem like uh, bickering over secondary details is, is the main point. So, praise God for all of that. 
And so I told you that from these uh, verses, 19 verses, we're going to learn three very important things about who God is. We're going to see those in a very vibrant kind of technicolor way. Okay, so the first thing we see from this is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Uh, It says, in the beginning, God. Right, he created something from nothing. Uh, Most creation epics that you look at, uh, some god killed another god and then used its innards to seal, seed the earth. And, you know, there's all this crazy stuff that, and I get, no, that makes more sense really from a logical human standpoint. There had to be something with which you formed this thing. Uh, but what the Bible says is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before that, it was formless and void. God out of nothing began to speak things into existence. This Dear friends, speaks to the sovereignty of God. He is not like other gods. There's, there's, there's no other myth or tale next to him. This God is supreme. He has, I mean, that's, that's one of the things, man. It's like, it doesn't, the fact that it, it, it's hard for me to grasp and doesn't seem to make sense, that tells me even the more so that it's true, right? Because if somebody was trying to polish this thing and make it a little more palatable for you, they would have said, you know, there was... Something that blew up and God took the dust and, and formed it together. Because that's, that's easier to conceive of, right? But there, there was nothing and he made everything. Uh, one thing that shows us about his sovereignty is, is when we take that and we contrast it with our ability to create. Sometimes we think of ourselves as creative and I think that's true to a point. It's okay to say that, but we need to be careful uh, and, and just define our terms a little bit. Because we can't actually create. Because creation means something from nothing, and we can't do that. You might say, well, me and my wife got together, and, and now we got babies. What do you think about that? Yeah, but there was raw materials involved there that God provided for. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not going to do a sex ed class here. I'm just saying, that's, that's, you didn't start with nothing and come up with something. You started with something and came up with something else. Beautiful and, and amazing, and thank God for that process, because it, it also shows us uh, some of his divine nature. Uh, but ultimately, we can't create something out of nothing. We can take parts and other things. We can take some of what God has created and we can make beautiful things with it. We can make functional things with it. We can build. Uh, There's all kinds of things we can do, but we can not create. And so that should help us to see the distance between us and God in just this one facet, uh, that we are far beneath him and he is far above us. Um, I think sometimes, and we say it a lot around here because God's sovereignty is is a, a very important thing to understand to believe, but I think sometimes when we say sovereignty, that's, that's not a word that uh, is probably in your everyday sentence structures, and, and so I just, I just want to take a minute to think about why that matters and what that means. It, it matters supremely that God is sovereign, that you believe that. That's the way the Bible presents him. To understand God is less than sovereign is to, is to understand him wrongly. Let me say that. But why does that matter? Right? What is the practical application of God's sovereignty in your life on a day-to-day basis? Does it matter to you that God is sovereign? If you're asking that question, uh, I, I, and I, I hope you are, because I hope everything, anything we learn about God from his word, uh, anything that he gives to us, I hope we're, we're not just being hearers of that and going, yeah, I agree, but we're, how do I be a doer when it comes to God's sovereignty? What does that mean? How does that affect what I do or don't do or how I live? So, and, and the sovereignty of God reaches into every part of, of how we live and what we do, but there's one way that, as I was preparing for this and thinking about it, that uh, I, think, I think the Lord would, would want us to, to focus in on tonight. God's sovereignty makes us able to surrender. And I think surrender is very hard for us, and, and for good reason, because we have a lot of life experience that tells us that surrendering totally, fully, and completely to anything makes you vulnerable and when everything else around you is imperfect, that's a very scary thing. And, and so here's an example that, that I, just a very recent experience that highlighted this for me. A light bulb went off. Uh, I took my kids to, uh, there's, there's a park here in town that's got uh, a few acres of woods, enough to have some trails and feel like you're in the woods, but you're not really because you can still hear the car horns and whatnot. But it's cool. Like, it's a little respite. And so we go and we hike these woods, and uh, there's some old foundations woven throughout this set of woods, and there's this one place where there's this old fireplace, uh, and it's, it's broke down or whatever, and I'm seeing more and more of myself and Max, because uh, as we're going through, it's like all he's doing is scanning for something to climb or jump off of, right? Like, we're just trying to chill, walk the trails, you know, man, let's have a good time, and, and this brother just wants to climb something, jump off something, scale something, so we, he 
eyes this fireplace, and he's like, oh, sweet. You know, he notices that there's mortar missing, so he's like, those look like handholds. So, and, uh, you know, I'm like, fine, man, just climb it, you know? So it was like, I don't know, maybe seven feet. It was a little taller than me, seven feet tall maybe. And so he goes after it. He climbs up this thing. He gets up there, pushes a little self up, and, and uh, I'm over there like, yeah, you're the man. And, and his sister was there, so she climbs up too, and then they're up on the top. And, and there was this moment where now they're up there, and if you've ever climbed up something, if you haven't, you should try just because it's a good experience. But uh, if you've climbed up something, you'll know that it's harder to get down. It always is, uh, especially when you're on, the, you know, you're on the top and it's like that first trying to get over the edge. You know, I've done that on roofs before and then felt real dumb. But, uh, so he tries it himself a few times. He's like, no, nah, this ain't happening. Like, you know, Dad, I need help. And so it was this moment where I walked up to him, and Lucy did the same thing. I walked up to him and I put my hands up like this, and I could see this, this moment of processing for him. And he's like, there, you could tell there, there was still some intimidation about the, because I couldn't, I couldn't actually grab him off there. He was going to have to like, you know, kind of booty hop off the thing so I could catch him. But I was only six inches away. But he had to think about, and he was, there was a little bit of intimidation there about making that jump into my hands. And, and here's, here's the calculation he had to come to in order to do that. He had to, he, he had to be thinking, A, is dad strong enough? that if I jump off this thing, he can actually catch me? And does dad actually love me? And is he not going to think it's funny to just move his hands when I jump off this thing and let me crunch uh, on these rocks below me? And thankfully, uh, he came to the conclusion that he could surrender his sense of safety because he couldn't get down. And he decided to push off and let me catch him. And, And what I'm saying to you, friends, is Max understood dad was strong enough and loved him enough that he could jump off this thing and trust me. And what I'm saying to you is us thinking about God's sovereignty is not some abstract theological uh, thing that makes us feel important or like we know big words. Understanding the sovereignty of God and really believing that is going to be the difference between whether or not you're willing to actually totally surrender to him or not. Whether you're willing to be vulnerable and, and really push off into his hands and believe that he is big enough and strong enough no, no matter what the situation is, right? Because the temptation is there's, I'll give all these pieces of my life to God, but there's this one piece, and, and what is the calculation, friends? Let's be honest. Can he really handle this? Is he really going to be faithful? And his, when we believe and we trust in his sovereignty, which this account of his creative power should help us to, if he can do this, that's the point. If he is sovereign to this degree, that he has the control over all things enough to simply speak and bring light and land and seas and the firmament into existence, if he's that powerful, then friend, can he handle the thing that you're struggling to surrender? Can he be trusted for you to push off into his arms? And really, truly give yourself to him. He can. Sovereign, the sovereignty of God determines whether or not we will be able to surrender to him. The right answer is, he is sovereign. Completely and totally. And his power is never in, in any way taxed by what you bring to him. And what you surrender to him. Praise God for that. Uh, he is sovereign. He is also separate. He is separate. And when I say that, I mean he is separate from his creation. This is another distinction between Christianity and other false beliefs. God is separate from his creation. We see here that um, he didn't, you know, uh, he didn't sacrifice himself and lay down so that all of the earth could, could, you know, grow up out of his very essence. He didn't have to do that. He just said, let it be. And it was. And so the, the, the pantheist or panentheist view that God is infused into the creation in some way uh, that then leads to creation worship uh, is, is, is less than the picture we see painted of God here in the first part of Genesis. Let me read you Romans 1, starting in verse 18. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. 
Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You see, here's, here's the thing. We, especially in our day, we, need to, to be, we have to be careful to make a distinction between the beauty of God's creation that points to him and that creation being him, okay? And we're getting the lines blurred on appreciating the beauty of what God has made and or unintentionally or intentionally worshiping what God has made. That's what Romans 1 says. That was the problem. That's what God was holding them accountable for. Instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the created. And that is really a perennial problem for all of us in various ways and, and kinds. And so I can't get into that. But that's, that's a huge issue. Um, and just practically, I, I have known sometimes, this, this manifests itself in so many different ways. I'm just going to talk about the plainest way. I have known um, hunters and like outdoor types, hiking, people that really like to hike and whatnot, just be in the outdoors, which I would put myself among them. I just don't have as much time to do it as I would like. Um, I, have, I have heard them say things like, you know, when I'm out in the woods, um, that is, that's my sanctuary. Or um, I, I connect to God better out there than I do in a church, right? And that's, they'll say that because their understanding of a church is it's a place where you go. They, they don't understand that church is a people that are gathered for God's glory. So they'll say, you know, I feel more of God's presence out here in the morning, out in the woods than I ever do in a church building. And uh, I, I, I get that. And, and a in addition to that, there's a recent study that came out um, basically polling millennials on uh, why it seems like so many of them are abandoning the church. And the number one answer was not that uh, the pastor wasn't hip enough or the fog wasn't thick enough or the music wasn't loud enough. And that's what a lot of people think, right? Those are the things they focus on. We're losing millennials because we're not cool enough. That's really not the point. If you actually ask them what you'll find, the most common answer far and away was that they said, we're finding God elsewhere. We're finding God elsewhere. And I don't doubt that that's true, but what, what they need to understand is, and what we have to be able to speak about, because some of you, that may even sound enticing. Some of you are thinking, you know what? Hiking right now might be funner than what I'm doing. I'd like to be out there. And, and that thought may be crossing your mind. And there is, what I'm saying is we don't, we don't want to deny what Romans 1 says plainly. We don't want to deny the awe that should be uh, that should come upon us as we read Genesis 1 and we think about all that God created with, the, with simply just proclaiming by the power of his speaking that all things came into existence. God has created a very beautiful world. Has he not? I mean, there's some beautiful things. There are awe-inspiring things in what God has created. We don't want to deny that. And we don't want to deny even that we can learn about God through his creation. That's what Romans 1 says, does it not? That, that his divine attributes... His power is clearly seen. It's clearly seen through what has been made. We need to be able to make a distinction to our friends and even with ourselves on the fact that you, you may think you're encountering God out there, and I'm not saying you can't in, in, in one way, but really what you're seeing, you're seeing, you're being struck and put in awe by what God has made more than by God himself because Ultimately, God, if, if this is true, if Genesis 1, 1 through 19 is true, then God is God. He's the supreme ruler. He's the sovereign. He created everything. And so he gets to dictate how we enjoy that. We don't get to just say, okay, um, I, I feel warm and fuzzy when I'm in the woods, but not the last time I gathered with God's people. And so I'm going to do that because I feel like I'm finding God there and not the other place. Now, we need to raise our hand as the church and own a big part of this because part of the reason why millennials and many other people feel they are not finding God, and that's, that's a difficult, tricky terminology, but I'm just going to use it because that's what they're using. They're not finding God gathered among God's people but out somewhere else. Part of the reason that is is because we have, for several decades now, unfortunately, uh, in many cases, relied on a bunch of other things to try to draw people in. I, I begin to mention them earlier, but 
uh, all kinds of tactics and strategies and, and, and trying to create some kind of environment that uh, we think is going to bring people in instead of relying upon the power of God's Holy Spirit, instead of praying desperately and pleading with him to come and meet us every single time we gather like this, instead of actually getting into the word which has power and preaching the gospel which has power uh, to actually change the hearts of people, instead of uh, just kind of pandering to people and, and fueling their already consumeristic bends, uh, yeah, I'm sure in many places that people have gone, the church has failed them, and there has been none of God's presence there. So we need to own our part of that as the church and, and apologize and quit doing that. But on the other side, we also need to be brave enough to say to people, you may encounter some of the glory and the beauty of God outside and away from the gathering of his people, but you will not encounter the fullness of what God has for you disconnected from God's people. You were created for fellowship you were created for mission, and that's the other problem. I'm finding God somewhere else. Okay, so that means you feel, you feel something some other place. That's great. Do that. I want you to be in awe of God's incredible power uh, by seeing the beauty in what he has made. I hope all of us are doing that. We, that's good for us. But we also need to understand that that's not, that's not the end of what this means. That's not the end of what the Bible is calling us to. Uh, we can enjoy God's creation, and we can enjoy things about God, but we are also called to mission. We're called to give something, not just enjoy uh, what he has made. And so we, we need to be willing to call people to that. We need to be able to say, man, it's, it's not totally all about you and how you feel. And we need to say that to ourselves sometimes. Oh, all right, we got some amens on that. Come on now. Go ahead, church. That's good. Amen. That is true, though. Um, it, if the Bible is true, and it is, God has told us not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. God has shown a clear normative pattern of people coming to faith in Christ and then coming together with other believers, joining together as a body, is what Corinthians says. You can't do this one by yourself in the mountains staring at the sunrise, can you? Joining together with other people with diverse gifts so that we can be together effective in getting more people this beautiful truth that that beautiful world they're enamored by was made by a God who loves them and wants relationship with them. You, you can't do that out in the woods by yourself or, or a lot of the other places people are fleeing to. It's not popular to stand up and defend the church of God. It's, it's, it's very, um, it is very kind of cool right now to say, yeah, you know, church is a bummer. Hey, man, I get it. And I know that many places Folks that have claimed to represent the church and even people that have been a part of God's true church have failed in many ways uh, to call people to mission and to live in a vibrant way and to expose people to the reality of the beauty of God. Um, yes, but that doesn't mean we give up on her. That doesn't mean we quit. Uh, and that doesn't mean we get to buy a canoe and go have our personal worship service on, on, on the river, man. Um. It's, it's kind of like this. My wife makes a very delicious chili. Some of you can uh, be a witness to that. She has, I don't know what her chili recipe is, but it's really good, and she puts vegetables in it, and uh, I like things chunky, so that's good. And so she, she'll make this chili, and it's really delicious, but what goes with it is, is the other part. It's kind of the crown jewel of the thing. It makes it all together. She makes this cornbread, and I don't know if she's got a vial of unicorn tears in the cabinet that she hides. I don't know what goes into the cornbread, but I, <clears throat> I have hated cornbread since I was a child because most people's cornbread is like eating yellow chalk, right? It's just dry, not something I want to eat. But something about her cornbread, it's, it's, it's delicious and it's not dry and it, it goes in the chili and it, makes, it turns it into this, this mixture that is, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like what I'm talking about. Right? You just you get this glimpse of God's glory eating this chili. But the, 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 the point that I'm making is if I was to get my chili and, and fix it all up and sit down at the table and I'm starting to eat that chili and, and I start, you know, I'm taking bites and I'm holding it up and I'm saying, chili, you're so good. You're so amazing. Thank you for being so good, chili. Oh, chili, you're good. You know, and I just keep... And I'm just, I'm thanking this chili and I'm, I'm basically worshiping this chili for its chilliness and its goodness. Uh, not only would that be really uh, psychotic on one hand, 
On the other hand, it would be a, a slap in the face to my beautiful wife that just made that chili. Here's the problem. That chili is really good. It's, it is an experience. If you haven't had it yet, you know, we'll get you on the counter. Come over. We'll have chili. It's really good. That chili is really good, but that chili didn't make itself. That chili had a, a creator and a maker. And if I want to thank somebody and I want, to, I want to tell somebody about how good that chili is, I shouldn't thank the chili. That's just the created thing. I can enjoy it, praise God, and I'm going to. Man, I could eat a mess of that chili right now, I'm just telling you. But for me to thank the chili would be, would be foolish and weird. For me to focus on my, my, my affection towards the chili, that, that would be weird. But I should turn to my wife that, that, as a labor of love, made that for our family, and I should say, thank you for making this chili. It's really good. Thank you. In the same way, we can enjoy the creation that God has made for us, but we should turn to our creator and say, thank you. Thank you for this, and worship him, because if it were not for him, if it were not for her, there'd be no chili, and if it were not for him, there wouldn't be whatever it is you're enjoying it, whatever the given moment is. Amen. The third thing we see from this is that he has the power to save. He has the power to save, and you might be thinking, hold on now, now I I know we're gospel-centered, and and you're always going to preach the gospel no matter where we're at in the text, and so now you have to try to stretch. I didn't see anything about salvation here. God was just making landscaping and stuff, and you're stretching. I don't think so. Paul sees a clear connection between God's first act of creation and our salvation. Let me read you 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, Paul sees this clear connection between the power of God displayed in that very first act of creation. Let there be light. And there was light. And it was good. This out, this from nothing. There was no reason for, nobody existed, so this is a dumb thing to say. But if you could have been there just as as an observer, there would have been no reason to have any hope of anything ever because there was nothing. It was void and darkness But God said, let there be light. And out of that hopelessness and out of that nothingness, light went forth. And God continues in in that creative process. Paul says, the same God who said, let there be light, is the same God that into an equally hopeless situation spoke his truth and let the the light of the gospel shine into our hearts so that that the knowledge of the glory of God could be seen by us in the face of Christ. And so, why, why does the first 19 verses of Genesis help us? It's, it's, it's almost the same in the way it helps us to believe in his sovereignty. Do you believe the problem of sin that God has the power to handle it? Where Paul, Paul's mind went to, sin's a big problem. People are dead in their sins. There is no hope for this world. Everybody's broken. Everybody, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The, the wages of sin is death. We're in serious trouble. But where did Paul's mind go when, he, when he's reaching for something to tell him, you know what, God does have the chops to come and bring an answer to this problem of sin and death for all humanity. Paul went back to Genesis 1. And when God said, let there be light, Paul said, that God, with that power, if we're talking about the power to save sinners, There's no comparison. If he can do that, he can do this. And so take heart, dear one. God has the power to save. You're not the one that's so wicked and so wretched that God is not mighty enough to come and to reach you, to save you, to bring you from darkness to light, from hopelessness to hope. You are not outside of the reach of his mighty arm. And uh, if you can buy that he said, let there be light, and there was light when there was nothing, then we can trust that even as, as dark as we are, as hard as we run, as much as we've rebelled, that he has the power to save. And here's the beauty, friends. He doesn't just have the power to save. He has the will to do it. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, says, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, I want to just tell you why this is important. I don't know if you heard me. He doesn't just have the power to save. He has the will to save. It's, it's, it's the difference for my kids when I was talking about that. It's the difference between me having the strength to catch them from on top of that chimney and the will to do it. Right? Because I, I could be a dad that's like, hey, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have the energy. I don't, I don't feel like it. Or um, I think it would be entertaining to see if you can do it yourself. Whatever the thing is, I had to, have, I had to be, have the ability to help them down, but I also had to have the will to do it. And that's where some people, I think, the disconnect is. Some people might say, yeah, sure, God's powerful. I believe Genesis 1. I believe that he spoke. I don't see any other reasonable explanation for how all that is here is here. God must have created all things. But where the disconnect comes is they're not sure that he's willing to apply that great, mighty, sovereign power to them. They're not sure he has the will to save Ephesians speaks to it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoptions as as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, In the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. I think think the question is settled. He not only has the power to save, dear friends, he has the will to save. And did you you catch this? The tie-in to where we're at that that will was there and in place before the foundations of the world, before this creative act, even before God started speaking stuff into existence, this was his desire. This was his will. It's always been the same. It's never changed. We'll talk about that in a second because I realize there are some implications. It is amazing to me. It's amazing to me. God knew before he made us that we would need him to save us. Some have in a philosophical way, thought about, okay, all right, God's omniscient, he's all-knowing, God is alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, he's outside of time, so that means before God created everything, he knew all that would happen, so God knew all of the fact that the tree would be in the garden, he knew that Adam and Eve would eat of it, he knew that sin would enter the world, he knew that all of the then subsequent devastation and darkness and death and all the despicable results of sin and humanity would be the case. And so then we start to think of individual examples of the worst of the results of sin, and then, then, then the, the line of logic goes, well, I don't know if that was worth it. Should God have, knowing all these things, should he have created? Would it have been... All of the pain, all of the results of sin could have been avoided. First of all, we need to take a humble seat when we get to that. Some people have never even thought that far, and granted. But when people do, what they need to ultimately end up at is, if, if I come to the point where I decide God did this thing, I think I would have done another thing, we should say, I'm not God. Go ahead and say that. Let's say, I'm not God. Let me hear you say it. That's good for you to say. In your morning mirror pep talk, add that in there. I'm not God. Think, think about this. I hope this helps and doesn't hurt. Let's say that you had a vision or a dream, okay? And uh, in, in that vision or dream, it was made apparent to you that you would have a son. In this vision, you see that the child at age 10 is going to rebel. Uh, and what they're going to do is they're going to burn your house down. And when they do that, it's going to kill your other two children. And then they're going to run away from you. The child then spends the next 80 years of their life as a cruel, maniacal, serial murderer of men, women, and children. Then you see in this vision that at age 90, the child is going to repent and ask for your forgiveness just before they die. Then in the vision, you're given the exact situation of the conception, so you have the ability to choose whether to bring this child into the world. What do you do? I think it's probably something worthwhile to think about what we would do. That's probably a helpful, healthy exercise. But the, the end of the question, the, uh, the end result is it really doesn't matter what we would do. Because we are all that child. We have all rebelled. 
we have all turned our back on God. The wages of sin is death. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. God made a calculation before creating each of us knowing we would rebel against him. He showed what his choice was. He made you and he wants you. Even knowing, you know, we don't have that. Typically, you don't have that choice beforehand. What the situation I just described is not normative. You don't normally have a, a dream before you have a child that gives you the, the child's whole life so you can see, oh yeah, they're going to end up fine, or no, they're going to be a miscreant thorn in my side for all of their existence. We don't get that choice, but God did with every single one of us. All of the entirety of humanity, God had the foreknowledge. He did see it, and he made a choice that he did want us, and that that. That relationship, even if it was just at the, at the tail end, the relationship with each of us was worth it. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe, whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God has shown his will about it. God has shown what he would do in that situation. And you can come to one of two conclusions about it. You can say, nope, the darkness and death and pain and sin in the world, it's too much. God shouldn't have done that. And I would say to you, dear friend, quit saying God shouldn't have done that because that, th- those are the words of a fool, okay? God has done it. And everything about the brokenness of the world that bothers you and would lead you to the conclusion that he, he just should have skipped this whole thing, everything that bothers you about it, even the specific things, the hardest things, your own personal pains, the deepest ones, every single thing, every single broken thing that sin has caused, it it. it hurts and pains the heart of God, I'm using this word on purpose, and it's an absolute, I'm careful with these, infinitely more than it hurts you. Because he is able to perceive infinitely more than you are all of the ramifications of those pains and the, the, the results of sin. In your, even in your heart, even in your life, but then we rarely see how the shockwave of sin goes out and, and all that it ravages. God sees all of it. God saw all of it, and something, you tell me, something about that end goal that he has declared is going to happen of us and him forever, that was worth all of this to him. It's kind of God I can get behind and push. It's kind of God you want to lay down for and say, I'm, I'm, yeah, this is an easy surrender. Praise the Lord. May we be a people who rejoice in God's sovereignty, acknowledge his great power on display through what he has made, and trust completely in his power and desire to bring us out of death and darkness into life and light. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for these first uh, 19 verses of the first book of your Bible. Thank you, Lord, for what it reveals about who you are, uh, the mightiness of your hand, your absolute unquestioned power, your sovereignty. Thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign. You are the God of gods, King of kings, Lord of lords. There's no one next to you. No one comes even close. Thank you, Lord, that we can fully surrender to you because you're never going to be toppled. You're never going to be defeated. Uh, You're never going to change. We can trust you and we can surrender fully to you. Thank you that you've revealed not only that you're powerful, but that you are willing to save us, that you're willing to come into the middle of the messes that we create and to bring grace and mercy, to pour, Lord, uh, your healing into those situations. Thank you, God, that you're patient with us. Thank you, Lord, that you're willing to work a long process of sanctification with us. Thank you, Lord, that you've been patient. Lord, we, we, those of us uh, that have been on this earth, however long we, we've been, Lord, we, we think we're impatient waiting for your return. Lord, you have been, you have been working this thing since, <laughs> since before you spoke light into existence. You knew how all of this was going to go, and you have, you have patiently with long suffering taken step by step with us. You've been with us. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't create us and, and go do something else, but you're still intimately involved and that you're a part of what's going on and that you care. Thank you, Lord. That you're not just mighty and powerful, but that you care. That you're a good and loving God that can be trusted. Thank you that we can fully surrender to you. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, we confess as your people that oftentimes fear or anxiety, insecurity, sometimes it's just unbelief, Lord. Sometimes we struggle to surrender fully. Lord, we want to do that. We know that you're worthy of our surrender, 
of us laying everything down and saying, Lord, I trust you with every piece of it. Lord, I know you'll catch me. I know you're powerful enough and I know you're good. Please help us, God. Help us to trust you in these things. Thank you for your power on display and what you've created. Thank you, Lord, for the beautiful world that you've given us. Lord, help us to enjoy it rightly, but to give our worship and our adoration where it belongs. Help us, Lord, not to uh, become distracted by the gifts you've given us in this creation. Uh, but Lord, may it cause us to have even more, um, even more of all, and even more adoration, and, and even more vibrant worship given to you and to you alone. Lord, you're worthy of that. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are powerful, sovereign, and mighty, and that you're at work in us by that same mighty power. We love you, Lord. We exalt you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.